invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word and, and turn in, the, in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 981 in your Pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, Paul is setting forth for us the, in some ways, the order of our salvation. We see that we are justified. We see the doctrine of sanctification here. And then we see that great hope that we're looking forward to in the resurrection of the body and our blessed glorification. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, please pay careful attention for this is God's holy an inspired word. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision." who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let us ask that the Lord would bless this Word to us this morning. O oh Lord, we give thanks that You have not remained hidden, but You have indeed revealed Yourself to us and to our children in your holy scriptures. We thank you that these scriptures have been preserved for us, that we may even right now in, in 2021 read this word in, in a language that we can understand and draw comfort through them. And we ask, O oh Lord, that in this moment we would not be mere hearers of your word, but that we would be doers also. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I, we're going to be focusing particular, particularly on the last two verses of this passage, verses 10 through 11. Verses 10 through 11. 
Now, there is much consternation that can come in our ordinary lives when we have wrong expectations. We all can probably think of those moments in our life when we've had too high of expectations and we have inevitably become disappointed because people or circumstances could not live up to our extremely high expectations. But on the flip side, we've also probably had moments in our life when we've had too low of expectations. As a result, we have missed out on on things that we may not have missed out on if we didn't have such low expectations. In a lot of ways, one could think of growing in wisdom in this life as a growth in having a properly orientated, having properly orientated expectations. Well, similarly, in the Christian life, we also need to know and have the proper expectations. Now, in verses 1 through 9, which we have recently read, Paul took us to the very mountaintop of Christianity, explaining for us the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we are righteous not by our own inherent righteousness, but by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But now what? Once we're justified, declared right in the sight of a holy God, adopted in the family of God, now what? What does the rest of our Christian life look like? The years, the decades of walking with the Lord. To use a common Ordinary example or analogy is sort of like we all know what to expect on on the wedding day, for for those of you uh, who are married, but what what do the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years look like? That's a little bit more complicated. So this this morning, I'd like us to consider this topic, this question, what should our expectations be for the Christian life? It's this topic or question that Paul is addressing head-on for us in in verses 10 through 11. And Paul's answer is very important because you go to an average Christian bookstore, you're going to get a lot of different answers when it comes to how we should live our Christian lives. But the answer that Paul gives us is that the Christian life is a life of knowing Christ. Now this isn't just an intellectual knowledge of Christ. But this is an experiential knowledge, an all-encompassing knowledge of Christ. And he's telling us that that is what our expectation should be as we envision our Christian life. It's an ever-growing and deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what does that knowledge of Christ look like? Well, Paul points us in three directions. He tells us that in this life we know Christ in suffering... We know Christ in power, and we will one day know Christ in glory. And so those are the three points I want us to consider this morning. We know Christ in suffering, we know Christ in power, and we will one day know Christ in glory. So first, let us consider how we know Christ in suffering. If you look with me in your Bibles at the end of verse 10, you know, Paul, uh, Paul says this, 
Well, the beginning of verse 10, he, he gives us that great purpose statement of our justification, that I may know him. But what does that knowledge look like? Well, he, he continues at the end of verse 10 by saying, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In Paul's mind, suffering is an integral part of our knowledge of Christ. That begs the question, well, what is suffering? And as we hear this, as we hear about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, I would imagine most of us go immediately to persecution. Or those ways in which we are explicitly martyrs uh, uh, because we are Christians. Whether that be you know, experiencing financial distress because we're targeted at work, whether it be verbal uh, attacks because we are Christians, I think we, we immediately think of those, those ways in which we suffer explicitly because we are Christians. Now, if that's all that Paul has in mind as he's talking about sharing in Christ's sufferings, that makes his words not, not all that relevant for us. As I would imagine, most of us probably haven't experienced all that much persecution explicitly because we're Christians. Now, that's not to say that uh, to downgrade that kind of suffering by no means is very commendable. But all I want to do is ask the question, is there more to the sufferings of Christ than, than just those sufferings that come our way because we're Christians? Does Paul have a broader conception of, of suffering than just persecution? I believe he does. I believe he does. And just to be up front, we're going to go to a number of different texts this morning. Uh, because what Paul says here in these two short verses, he explicates and expands upon in a number of other places in his epistles. So in Romans 8.17, Paul explains in greater detail what the sufferings of this present age, the sufferings of Christ, entail. Listen to what what the Apostle Paul says. He says, And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. And so here Paul is not saying that our suffering is somehow a condition for being saved or being adopted. Rather, he's saying that as the adopted children of God, we should expect suffering. But in context, he he. He mentions in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time won't end until the redemption of our bodies. This age, it's an age of suffering. That's what Paul says. It won't end until the redemption of our bodies. And he says that it's not only us as image bearers who partake of the sufferings of this present age, but creation itself participates in this suffering. This then would indicate for us that The sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of this present evil age, are not only those things that come our way because we are Christians, but also anything that comes our way, any suffering, any hardship that comes our way by virtue of living in a fallen world. Now think about the the hardships in your life right now, and how many of those hardships can only be attributed to the fact that you live 
in a fallen world, and things are not as they should be. Furthermore, I think another, another argument that, uh, to support this, this point that Paul has a, a broader conception of the sufferings of this present age is, is the fact that he says that we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. If we're sharing in Christ's sufferings, then we're, we probably will suffer in a similar way that Christ suffered. So how did Christ suffer? If you recall in Philippians chapter 2, this, this famous Christ hymn the Apostle Paul gives us, which details for us the humiliation and suffering of our Savior as he was uh, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man, by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is spelling out for us the way in which Christ suffered. And yes, his suffering consisted of him dying on a Roman cross, but it also consisted of him being born in human flesh, being born in a fallen world. And so as even your own Westminster Larger Catechism says, that Christ's sufferings consisted of him sharing the common infirmities, ailments, tribulations that we all endure in this broken world. And so if Christ's sufferings included those common sufferings of the fall, then those common sufferings of the fall are also included in our own sufferings as we share in in Christ. So as you come back to Philippians 3.10, Paul says that we share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Brothers and sisters, this is not just persecution. This is every hardship, every trial, every tribulation that you are enduring, whether it be great or small, by virtue of living in a fallen world, that is how you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. That is how you're being conformed to his death. There is no second-class suffering. There's no second-class suffering. So Paul's saying we know Christ in suffering. And he says this broad conception of suffering. But that's not the whole story. Paul would also ask, have us ask the question, Is there anything more going on in our sufferings than what we may see on the surface? And he would say, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Because we also know Christ in power. We know Christ in power. So again, if you continue to look at verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul goes on and and says that another way in which we know Christ is in the power of his resurrection. Now, in Christ's resurrection, he proved to the entire world that he indeed was the God-man. That all of his claims were true. But his resurrection also served as the first fruits of our resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is, Christ is our representative and guarantees our resurrection. Not only our future bodily resurrection but also our inward resurrection. Now, if you are believing in Christ, resting in Christ for your salvation, that's evidence that you have already experienced this inward resurrection. 
theologically refer to that inward resurrection as regeneration. Where the power of God through His Spirit gives us a new heart, causes us to be born again, we experience that inward resurrection. And so the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's given new life to us. And that power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made us a new people. And we know Christ in power. We know Christ in power. Well, we may be tempted, you know, as, as Paul lays out these two, two ways in which we know Christ in this life, in suffering and in power, it would be easy for us to think of these two knowledges of Christ as these parallel lines that are non-overlapping. As if, you know, this year is the year where I, I'm knowing Christ in suffering. And hopefully next year it will be a year in which I know Christ in power. We're constantly jumping back and forth between these two lanes, as it were. But that's not at all how Paul would have us think of these two knowledges of Christ. Rather, he's saying that they completely overlap. They're two ways of viewing the same situation. So we know Christ in power as we suffer. Or, to put it another way, is precisely in our suffering that we experience the power of Christ. Think of it this way. You know, your suffering is the playing field, the playing court for, God, for Christ to manifest His power in your life. Now this week, the, the Olympic Games have just begun. And imagine if you, you said to yourself, I want to see the fastest man in the world run. What would you do? Well, you turn on the TV and you'd watch the Olympics, particularly track and field uh, portions of the Olympics. Because you know if you want to see the fastest man in the world, you watch the Olympics. You don't go on a hike in the mountains. There's a, there's a whole a number of you don't, don't go camping. No, you turn on the TV, you watch the Olympics. In a similar way, if we want to know where, where does Christ's power manifest itself in my life, we look to our suffering. That's the playing field, the playing court, the track, as it were, for Christ to manifest His power in our lives. It changes how we view the the trials, the tribulations, the sufferings that that come our way in this present evil age. You may be thinking, okay, that sounds great, but where's Paul teaching that from Philippians chapter 3? Well, again, if you look with me at verse 10... Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering. So that word and that that connects the power and and knowing Christ in power and knowing Christ in suffering, that and is, is being used in an explanatory manner as if they mutually explain one another. We want to know more about God's power, we look to our suffering. We want to have a better explanation of the sufferings of our life, we look to the power of Christ. They, they mutually reinforce one another. They explain one another. Now, if you like, you can, uh, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12, or you can just listen as I read these, these few verses. I'd like to read these verses because Paul is saying the exact same thing here 
as he is teaching us in two short verses in Philippians chapter 3. And as I read this, listen. Listen in particular to this relationship between suffering and Christ's power. It's very instructive. The Apostle Paul says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now listen to this in particular. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says that we endure suffering in this age so that the very life, the resurrection life, power of Christ would be able to be manifested in our life as well. So we see that same relationship of how it's the sufferings. The sufferings are the playing court of God, of Christ to show His power in our life. And I hope that this gives us a perspective change for how we see our own trials that we are walking through. Whether they be great, whether they be small, it's precisely in your suffering that Christ's power is manifested. And this is one of the paradoxes Many paradoxes of Christianity. So think with me of a particular hardship you're walking through right now. Even name it in your head. And be assured that God's word, which comes to you in this moment, his word which does not err, promises that it's in that situation that Christ promises to show up in his power and presence to nourish you to strengthen you, to sustain you. That's a comforting promise. What response response should we have to this realization? This realization that, that Christ's power is present in our suffering? Well, Paul calls us to respond in joy, joy and contentment. In our And this this passage begins, in verse 1, with this command to rejoice. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I believe what he's doing is he's, he's saying that our joy in this life is attached to our justification, because that's what Paul is developing in verses 2 through 9. So we find joy in our justification. But we also find joy in knowing Christ in power and in suffering. That seems odd, doesn't it? Usually when we suffer, joy is not that instantaneous response that is evoked in our hearts. It definitely begs the question, how do we find joy in such difficult circumstances that we are called to walk through? Well, in 2 Corinthians 12, a passage you may be well familiar with, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 11, it's another passage which is a great cross-reference to verses 10 through 11. 
Paul is, is talking about this mysterious thorn in the flesh that he's experiencing. A great suffering for the Apostle Paul. And he pleads with God that God would remove this thorn from his flesh. And God's response is to say, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As I say, it's not wrong to ask God to remove suffering, but every day in which that suffering persists is a day in which God still wants to perfect his power in our weakness. But notice Paul's response to this. So God chooses to not remove the suffering from the Apostle Paul, but assures him that God's power is going to be manifested, perfected in this instance, in that weakness, in that suffering. And therefore, Paul's response to this is to say, Therefore, I will boast the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the Apostle Paul did not rejoice, find contentment in suffering for its own sake. The reason why he could rejoice, the reason why he could find contentment in some of the worst situations in life is because he knew that that is where Christ's power will be manifested in his life. So let me ask you, are you finding joy? Are you finding contentment in the trials of your life? The trials that you're presently walking through? And if not... Is it because you've forgotten, forgotten that that situation, those circumstances, is the playing field for God, for Christ to manifest his power in your life? We need to constantly direct our minds of this important reality. That's the only reason why the Apostle Paul could rejoice, the only reason why the Apostle Paul could find contentment in such dire circumstances. While the knowledge of Christ does not end when he returns, but rather our knowledge of Christ is consummated, perfected, as we look forward to that day when we will know Christ in glory. So I'd like to briefly turn to, the, uh, to my third point, how we will know Christ in glory. And we see this in verse 11, as the Apostle Paul looks forward to that great day that's ahead of all of us. As he says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul is saying that you know, we have a, a certain hope. He's, he's not wanting to cast a doubt as if somehow it's unsure. Our future state is secure. Paul's saying that it will contain hardships though. Humiliation comes before exaltation. That was, that was the pattern for Christ, the pattern for us. But we do have a great and certain hope of the resurrection of the body, that day when we will know Christ in consummated glory, when we will no longer have to know Christ in suffering. All pain, all tribulation, all tears will, be, will give way to eternal bliss. We will know Christ in glory. And Paul wants us to keep our eyes fixed upon that day, to, to always remember that we are, we are pilgrims, journeying to that, that celestial city, that new Jerusalem. 
He wants us to remind, to remind us that we are, we are runners in a race. And we're awaiting that great finish line. Consummation. You know, I've dabbled a few times in, in marathons. And I remember once reading a, a study that said that if you run and you keep your eyes fixed on, on something ahead of you, whether it be the next runner or an object ahead of you, it, it propels you forward. I think there's sort of an analogy with that to the Christian life. Paul wants us to keep our eyes fixed forward on where we are headed. As that reminds us that we are not in our home, in our ultimate home. We are pilgrims, strangers, aliens. We are looking forward to the great finish line. But what happens Monday through Saturday as we leave from this place is our, our eyes tend to drift, don't they? they? They sometimes drift down to our feet. And we recognize how weary we are, how tired we are. Sometimes they drift off to the side as we are running this race to the Christian life. And, and we, see, we see people sitting on the bench, relaxing. We see picnics happening around us. And we're like, is it worth it? I'm struggling, sweating, I'm running. This is hard. Why am I doing this when I could be enjoying that picnic off to the side? Brothers and sisters, this is why God has given us the Lord's Day. As we gather together in moments like this, enjoy the fellowship of the saints, hear the word of God, partake of the sacraments, Holy Communion, our minds are lifted up, redirected on where we are going. Reminded of the certain hope that we will one day know Christ in consummated glory. And that is why the Lord's Day is so important. Because we have drifting eyes. We have drifting eyes that need to be redirected on what is ahead of us. Well, let's give thanks for, to our Heavenly Father for feeding us not only through his preached word, but also at his table. So let us pray. Almighty God, we most heartily thank you You have indeed fed us who have rightly received this holy sacrament with the spiritual food of the most precious blood and body of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You assure us by this bread and wine of your favor and goodness toward us that we are members of the body of your Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people. You have made us heirs of your everlasting kingdom, by the merits of the most precious passion and death of your dear Son. And we most humbly pray, O Heavenly Father, assist us with your grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship, and do all such good works as you have prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen.